The Olympic gold medal winning gymnast and high school sophomore said that after all those years of hard work, it was a relief to finally realize her lifelong dream. Good to get that out of the way at 15. In three, two, one. Good evening, everybody from New York City. I'm Dan Rydell alongside Casey McCall. Those stories plus. I'm Steve Semino alongside Adam Amin. Those stories plus. We discuss episode nine, The Quality of Mercy at 29K. How's that for an intro? I feel like we're, we're excited. This is like our, our signature intro now. I, I feel like people are listening and their jaws just dropped because we just blew them away with some kind of new some kind of new thing to start here. But, you know, we're mixing it up a little bit. We're on a stretch here of really, really, really good episodes. And I'm pumped tonight because we have our second guest on the podcast, a friend of mine from ESPN and the SEC Network, producer Daniel Bramlett, who handles a lot of the same duties that one Dana Whitaker handles. He's an award-winning producer who's been all over the place in his career between Idaho and Mississippi, Austin, Texas to New York. ESPN in Austin and now ESPN in Charlotte as part of the SEC Network. So we're really excited to share that conversation with you. It was great to talk to him. He does, as you just said, have a wealth of experience all over the place. So it was nice to hear somebody, anybody with this kind of inside knowledge and, and having him connect to the show and how he got started on it. And just like, I really enjoy, as you'll hear, how he says certain things just make him, uh, really? Are you sure about yeah. that? Which is perfect. Like, I love hearing... The good and the bad, the real and the fictional, and it all comes together. So great talk with him. So before we dive into our episode, The Quality of Mercy at 29K, let's hear from ESPN and SEC Network's Daniel Bramlett. Now we're joined by Daniel Bramlett of ESPN and the SEC Network, a producer, a highlight producer for several shows on the SEC Network. His resume spans a long time and a lot of different places, starting in Idaho, where he was a evening news producer. He was in Jackson, Mississippi. He was in Austin, Texas, worked for the MLB Network for a while, an award-winning producer, and we're lucky enough to get a chance to sit down and talk with him and uh, see how he discovered sports tonight. Daniel, thanks for taking the time with us. Thank you very much. Yeah, you got you got them all. Uh, yeah, I've been I, all over the place. I've, and we have to mention you are a proud proud TCU Horn Frog, so I'll, I'll give you that. TCU much Frog, yeah, for sure. I've, brought, I've definitely brought that with me everywhere I've gone, for sure. I'm known as a TCU guy to a lot of people. Well, first things first, how did you discover the show Sports Night? When was it, and, and why did you seemingly enjoy it when you first discovered it? So I watched Sports Night. Uh, I didn't watch it the original run-through when it was on ABC. I, I caught up with it a couple years later in college when the reruns would come on Comedy Central. And I, uh, I had a roommate, a uh, really good friend, still great friends, and he he was big into it. He loved Casey and Dan, and uh, I just we started watching it. Turned into a thing, and and uh, again, that was I know this is going to date me, but that was in the pre DVR days, so uh, <laughs> you kind of had to watch whatever was on. Right. And uh, Comedy Central played a lot of sports nights, so we watched a lot of it. When did you discover it in relation to what you were doing in your career at the time? So this is it was when I was it was when I was in college. It was not the original run, but it didn't take too long for it to get turned around into syndication. It was really critically acclaimed, as you as you know, even though it wasn't highly rated. Uh, so we were watching it in college, and I was at the time I was at TCU, and I was uh, in the film study program. You know, really kind of pictured myself as a movie maker, a guy who was going to try to go out and make Hollywood movies. But uh, it's funny. I, I was right as the time I was, I was I was discovering Sports Night. I was kind of in sort of a crossroads on that path also because I had done some student film projects and it really didn't quite deliver, uh, you know, the way I wanted it to be. I had some experiences that didn't quite pan out the way I thought they would. And so I was kind of wondering, you know, is this film thing for me? You know, I really like the, uh, the production and the storytelling, but I don't know if I want to work really hard for 
things that, you know, small rewards and, you know, I saw myself going out to L.A. and being broke and, and didn't really like that <laughs> idea. So. Uh, so anyway, so yeah, so so Sports Night came along and I just, you know, and I started to think to myself, hey, you know, maybe there's maybe there's a way to do, you know, production work and do some of the same things I've been doing, but in a different vein along, you know, the TV side. And so I actually, you know, watched the whole series through, you know, and a bunch of reruns. And I think it was not until the next year later, though, that. I went and did an internship at a Dallas affiliate, uh, KXAS in Dallas, the NBC affiliate there, and just did an internship in the sports department and really fell in love with TV producing. And I think Sports Night definitely like pushed me in that direction. I wouldn't say it's the reason, but it definitely did give me sort of a a new window into where I could go, where I was kind of uh, not sure what I wanted to do. So it was great. I'm always curious, speaking to people who do this sort of thing in real life versus the fictional universe, what kind of similarities stick out to you from the Dan and Casey, Dana and Isaac situations into real life? Are there any things from the show that you were like, oh, that's just like real life, or uh, anything you see in your day-to-day that you're like, that's just like sports night? Well, I'm trying to think. that, that It's obviously easier to uh, to point out the, the reverse of that, you know, because you think, oh, that would never happen, that would never happen. Well, that's even better, actually. Uh, yeah, yeah. That kind of stuff jumps to mind, and I didn't probably know it the first time I was running through, but I remember when I would watch the show, the thing that always stuck out to me, even before I got in the TV business, was uh, the way they would have these long, extended conversations in hallways and, and things like that during the commercial break, and they'd be like, oh, you know, you know they're always, you got how many minutes? And, and uh, <laughs> I always thought, like, how, how can they be in the middle of a live broadcast and they're having, you know relationship dating conversations you know of life and you know great import and you know i think there i uh, you know there was a the whole storyline with dan and rebecca you know like dan like left during commercial break went back to it left the studio left the set went to his office and had like a heart-to-heart with rebecca (laughs) about you know her and uh and i'm thinking you know uh, the whole time now especially when i rewatched that scene the other day you know the producer and me is like oh my gosh i'd be like where you're thinking where is my talent where is my (laughs) yeah yeah exactly because the commercial breaks i mean and for us at sec network is pretty standard you know two and a half minute breaks other you know sports center is going to have some longer breaks and other shows are going to have longer you know four or five minute commercial breaks for us it's two and a half minutes so it's really almost no time at all what is very true and captured well in the show is the way that everyone is listening type of thing sort of you know in a set in a control room like there'll be a time where there was a scene where dan and casey were talking you know on the set kind of bantering back and forth as they waited for the next thing to come up and then uh you know they're talking and then all of a sudden someone like chimes in on their conversation you know that was in the control room you know that was listening to what they were saying that they didn't know was listening and i think that happens a lot you know like you always have to be aware of like what you're saying because people two rooms over or all the way across the building might be listening and chiming in on your conversations and things like that so that could be pretty funny for those who aren't educated about the behind the scenes in the sports television world with specifically shows like this like highlight shows wrap-up shows how accurate is the format what does the format feel like for you and maybe how does it compare to what you see over the course of a tv show that was captured really well you know that i don't think i can't remember too many extended segments of being on air, um, you know, on the show. It seemed like they would always, you know, like come into a scene as they were wrapping up a, a segment on on the set or whatnot. I would say, you know, the way that they sort of they lay out for a, you know, they give a little tease and then they lay out for a commercial break and stuff like that. That that feels so natural and it's it's just incredibly well captured the way, you know, and they, uh, you know, they try to get some some terms in there. There was there was I remember one. Natalie right, would turn to Dana, and Dana says, "You know, do you have the SOT on Michigan State? You know, like SOT 
for anyone who doesn't know, it means sound on tape. It just means like a clip that you're playing that like has audio on it, not something that someone's going to talk their voice over. So, and there's a frantic scramble for the SOT, and they never did find it, and they missed it. And Dana's, you know, fl- floating it out of the show. I don't think they use that term on uh, Sports Night, but that's what we do when you're producers. You know, if you're you have a rundown, you always have way more stuff than you actually can fit into a show, and you're just kind of if things go wrong, you have backup planning and things like that. So, you know, it's funny how I think it's also really well captured how you know everyone can be freaking out. Oh, we don't have this this clip. We don't have this SOT clip and this and that. And Dana's just calm, and you know Natalie's freaking out, and Dana's just calm, like, okay, don't have it, don't, you know, we're gonna move on and right. do this instead. You know, I think that's an important, an incredibly important trait for any good producer is that sense of calm. And it's like, you know, if if da- if uh, if Dana Whitaker was a real producer, you know, she's probably incredibly livid that you know her associate producer would screw up and like lose a clip that was meant to air, you know, in a couple minutes and not be able to access that. But you can't show that, you know, live. You can talk to him about it afterwards, but you can't, you know, in the moment, you just have to make it a You're on air. You have to be like, okay, we don't have that. Well, we'll go to this. And I think that, you know, I mean, Felicity Huffman just crushes that role in general. She's she's great. She really uh, she really captures sort of this whole uh, detachment of the producer, you know, and it's very Sorkin-esque also. I think it's kind of a Sorkin trait of shows where people are very snappily bantering back and forth, but... I thought Dana really was uh, really well written in the way that she kind of can always be like, she'll walk into a room, be totally focused on what she's doing, you know, for her to get her goals, but she can always chime in, jump in on other people's little snappy conversations. And that's that sort of detached, you know, that dual, like listening, double listening that you're doing at all times when you're in that environment is, is captured pretty well. In some of these episodes, there are curious situations that do pop up, maybe a little bit to the extreme. Can you, share a story of maybe an extreme situation that you've dealt with at any point during you know your pretty long career now at this point being part of multiple shows whether it's newscast sportscast Mm -hmm. have you have you had any type of crazy situations that that you can share with us there's times where you might have an anchor and an analyst for halftime say so we're doing a halftime show of a basketball game and you got an anchor and analyst there they're sitting there throughout the first half they might you know do some some hits from the studio where they probably hey we're coming up with a halftime show you know that you've you see that on the other end. So I, there have been times even, you know, in the last year where like, so you do the halftime pop, we call it, you know, with, with four minutes to go in the half and they're like, hey, coming up. And so we do that and everything's fine. And then uh, then the analyst just disappeared. <laughs> and the analyst, uh, one of our analysts, I'm not going to name a name, but he, he just left. And so we come back, you know, a few minutes later and it's like, well, our anchor, Peter Burns, he's like, well, I was here with so-and-so, but now I'm here by myself. And he just, just did the halftime show by himself. So. You can't get mad. You can't yell and scream. We're like, where's my analyst? What you know? You just have to be like, okay, this is what we do have, and then we're gonna go forward with it. So one thing we always uh, it seems like every episode ask each other is, would this be the episode you would show somebody to give them the best idea of the show if they'd never seen it before? And so, just as a fan looking at Sportsnight as a whole, do you have a favorite episode or a favorite moment that you say that's the one that sticks out, or that's the that's the one I would show people to show them what it's all about? I do, and it's it's kind of a, it's a funny moment. I think it's it's probably pretty well remembered by most fans of the series. But if you ask me, my defining moment of sports night, it's this this episode where they're trying to decide, you know, the year end awards or, or the year, you know, the the best plays of the year. They're they're putting together like a piece, you know. Right, they want right, right. we call it a you know we call it a lot of times at, at ESPN we call it the images piece. You know, the images of the year. It's you know an extended three or four minute montage with all the great, you know, sound bites and mo- moments of the year. And so it's something we do every year, every season, you know, um, 
in our jobs, and they were doing that on Sports Night. And they so they're the whole episode. They're talking what should go into this montage. What should we put in this? What what are the great moments? And there's lots of debate between all the producers and on-air talent and Isaac weighing in and every you know. And I just and there's this great moment where they're trying to like decide between these two moments, which is number one, which is number one. And and Dana turns and says, well, you know, screw it, let's ask the crew. And they ask like the technical crew, who are like you know the directors, uh, associate directors, playout operators, you know, camera crew and things like that. They they ask them, and they're like everyone on the crew sends throws out like a different moment, like all different, like complete moments that were not on their list. And uh, I, and they're just like, ah, what do these guys know anyway? They don't, they don't know anything about sports. And they completely just like blow off at all the suggestions from the crew. And I thought it was kind of funny. Just, you know, that really captures sort of a, a very big thing in our job, which is, you know, like we are all here because we love sports. Every single person in every job loves sports. And uh, but the side that I'm on, you know, the production side, the editorial side, we, you know, we kind of sometimes can forget that, you know, our, our brothers and sisters who, who work next to us with more of a technical uh, point of view, we, they, they have, you know, really strong opinions on sports, too. So it's kind of, it's kind of funny. You got to. You, you sometimes can forget that, I guess. Well, Daniel, we really appreciate you taking the time out. Obviously, you have such a good background in what we're talking about with, with this show, and obviously it helps that you're a tremendous fan of the show, too, so we really appreciate you taking out some time for us tonight. No problem. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it a lot. Thanks to Daniel Bramlett of the SEC Network for taking some time out for us tonight. I, I just love the perspective of anybody who is in the heart of it, is in the thick of it, is sitting in the control room with the headset on and trying to direct all these different elements in order at the right time in the right place and break news and deliver news as, as best as they can. Just like you and I watch every single episode on Sports Night, I love hearing people that are in the thick of it and really appreciate Daniel for taking the time. I think my, my favorite part of doing this with you so far, eight episodes in, going on nine, is hearing like this inside stuff. It's either coming from you or from whoever we're interviewing, or there's times when we're not recording, and I'm kind of like, so what about that part? Like with that, and just hearing it and, and getting it all, all the complete truth from from people who have lived it in real life is amazing to me. Yeah, so we're all, thank we're, you to Daniel. It was a great talk. Though. Yeah, we're all kind of geeks for it. We're all kind of, um, you know, it, a lot of it is inside baseball, but we really do love the jobs that we get to do, and we love sports, like Daniel talked about. We really all are in it because we love sports a whole lot. And Daniel's been a news producer. He's been an award-winning news producer as well in his career, and. He's made the transition pretty much full-time into doing sports, and there's something about it that we really enjoy. So, again, thanks to Daniel. There's this this cult of fandom, too, with this show where oh my goodness, a couple of times as, as he was explaining things during the, while we were interviewing him there, talking to him, you and I were looking at each other like, ah, like we've had that <laughs> same thought. So it's just so cool to see people just be fans like that. It's awesome. So now we can dive in to episode nine, The Quality of Mercy at 29K. By the way, and I didn't realize this until I popped in my DVD to watch this episode, we are one full disc through now. You're, we're one disc <laughs> in. I did. I mean, when you and I started this thing, we didn't even realize we'd get we'd get a disc in, and now we, we're already we made it one, one through one one, one I, DVD through. I'm uh, I was very. I put it in. I'm, oh my! It's not on this one. It was. <laughs> I was amazed. So that's great. Uh, looking at episode nine, it originally aired on December first, nineteen ninety eight. Written by Bill Werbel and Aaron Sorkin, and directed by Tommy Shalami. Another instance where we just have a comma. I'm not sure if they were a partnership <laughs> or if it was just uh, somebody doing rewrites, but. A nice two-writer perspective, of course. Our synopsis out of our DVD booklet for this episode. On a cold, wintry day, the sports night team broadcasts in Everest Ascent, while Dan, determined to be more generous, searches for a charity worthy of his donation, and Dana discovers a new form of theater, the Broadway musical. Excellent read, as per usual, my friend. 
Thank you. I always get a little nervous and I'm going <laughs> to have to do it over and over again. So this episode begins with a, a very interesting cold open. Maybe the shortest cold open we've had so far? It's very, it feels very disconnected to everything else. It, it starts one of the storylines with Mount Everest, but other than that, it's just like a funny, real quick, hey, the show's on kind of situation. Yeah, Dan's got the quick line. They're finishing up uh, one of their segments, one of their stories uh, about, you know, good to get that out of, out of the way at 14 or whatever. Yeah. And, She's and been it, working her whole life for this Olympic gold medalist and sophomore in high school. Yeah, exactly. But, so she's so happy that her lifelong dream played off at 15. I'm a little jealous of that girl yeah, as am i uh, as a great directorial decision here tommy shalami i love that this episode begins with a shot of the viewfinder of a camera yeah on dan and then kind of pans away and you get to see him live at the desk just a cool visual that that starts the episode there off. will be multiple times in this episode for whatever reason i don't know why in this particular episode they they seemingly stick out a little bit more but there are some really really cool directorial choices that uh i think you and i both noticed and we'll both point out as uh, as the episode goes on so after discussing our, our gymnast, Casey leads us into really our main thread for this episode. We have got a, a climber named Desmond Corey and his team getting ready to approach the uh, summit of Mount Everest. They're going to get there about 2 a.m. So they are finishing up their show saying we're going to return and talk about this and have it live as it happens. So make sure that you're here and you're watching. We cut over to the booth where the gang starts to kind of argue about the height of Everest. Is it 29,000 feet? Is it 29,000? 29 feet. And they go back and forth. Uh, and I love the little lines about, well, how can we make, how can we accurately disca- describe this? 29,000 feet. You know how tall that is? It's 29,000 feet. Yes. It's actually 29,029 feet. And it's those last 10 yards that'll kill you. It's huge. It's 8,848 meters. It sounds more impressive at 29,000 feet. All right, I'm going to stick with 29,000 feet. How can I best express this? How many of what kind of thing would we have to line up end to end? 29,000 rulers. And I love Dana's line about it. it's that last yard, that, those last 10 yards that'll kill you. And I, I feel like actually that's probably pretty accurate yeah, yeah, well, when you're five miles in the air like that. Well, later they, they do talk about it in case he says the, the top of Everest is really no more, no, no larger than a dinner table. Mm-hmm. So like not when you actually put those together, it really does make a whole lot of sense. It's not just like a, a pointy top of the mountain necessarily, <laughs> but it is a very small amount of space to navigate. The Really the only thing I really noticed about this opening scene was when... Jeremy is kind of going through his little run, uh, and Natalie gives him a better, you know, it's better at 29,000 feet. It's better Mm. to describe it that way. And she gives him a look. And the look that I see Natalie give Jeremy is really cute. And I, all I wrote down was Natalie gives you looks that seemingly melt the coldest of hearts. Uh, if you can recall four or five episodes ago, I said that I used to be a Natalie guy, but I was starting to lean towards Dana. This episode brought me right back to team Natalie. (laughs) Much like Jeremy in this this episode. She's so... Adorable is the she's word a, that I, I'm like, I gotta adorable. find a better she's, word. She's so adorable in this episode, and she just gets so happy, and she's she's just so cute, and the, the relationship, as we'll see, comes like to an official, all right, let's just do this. It's just a great a great yeah. Natalie scene, and so, it's really a lot of, since the Christian Patrick episode, yeah. it's really the, the most Natalie we've had in a while. Too. I think so, too. Sweet kids, those oh, yeah. two. <laughs> I'm, I'm rooting for them. So we go to a commercial, and we come back in the office where Dan is complaining about how cold it is. It's not fit for Beast nor Man out there. And he's got a whole big stack of mail he's sorting through, complaining that he must be on a mailing list because it's all these people looking for donations. Exactly. Uh, Casey is kind of talking him through a couple of things in this scene. And I was listening, but I couldn't help but notice Casey's got some good hair. He's got the good hair. (laughs) He's got better hair than Dan. It's it started off in that pilot being pretty it was rough. It was a little rough, but he's definitely coming into his own. And in the second season, he gets that kind of 
that much shorter on the back and side situation going on. He really hits the hair stride in season two, I think. But and it looks great. No, it, it, it looks great in both. But you know what? Again, ahead of his time. The man is ahead of his time because <laughs> the haircuts he has in 1998 and 1999 are haircuts I've seen for the last like three years in, you know, in, in our modern culture. Those are the most popular hairstyles for men, seemingly, right now. So I don't know if he was uh, foreshadowed as the cool guy. And I know we, we kind of discover more about him as the, as the series goes on, obviously. But he, uh, he was ahead of his time, that man, Casey. And as he's kind of trying to help uh, Dan come up with who to donate to, they have this, this funny little bit about the vicious circle and how it never stops. I'd love to give money to all these people, but then I'd have no money. and I need someone's mailing list just to pay rent. That's uh, a vicious circle. It is. It's a never-ending circle. It just keeps going round and round. It never ends. Which is what makes it vicious. And a circle. And I think it's a great line, but there's so much laugh track in this scene. Yeah. It's out of control. Yeah, I'm not, and, and, I'll say, and I'll say this later on, too, for another scene. I think it's Dana and Isaac. You know, think about this as you're watching this episode. How different would this episode in particular be if you removed the entire laugh track? Just think about how different, for some reason, this episode has that difference for me personally like how different would it be if you took the entire laugh track out of this especially in a later scene with Dana and Isaac talking about the theater it just sticks out a little bit more for me in this episode absolutely and I'm wondering when it's going to start to drop out because all my memory was that it wasn't it was maybe a half of a season we're That's getting what I thought we're too. getting pretty close to the halfway mark here I mean we're, we're past one disc yeah there we go <laughs> one disc full of laugh track maybe as we get in the in the midway point of disc two they start to remove it a little bit everyone needs money is uh, the kind of thing that that Dan says and you can see his guilt about all of this, trying to figure it out. And I'll mention it later, too, just because he dives a little bit deeper into it. But I feel a lot like Dan in this regard with trying to figure out what to do to help anybody. Because I feel like a lazy jerk more often than not. (laughs) I I mean, I work a lot and I'm I'm out of town a lot. But when I'm home, I feel like just like the laziest human being on the planet. So I I feel like I can sympathize with Dan. I like how he, he'll kind of get more into it later, but how he says like, well, how come they deserve it more than these people? He just keeps trying to rationalize all of it. I can understand his feeling of like, well, if I give to A, then that makes me feel like I don't care about B, but B deserves it just as much. So he really is having a, he's struggling with some guilt there. (laughs) And it's it's pretty funny and, and also pretty endearing of him at the same time. So we go to a new scene in a rundown meeting. My first note here is there's a couple of extras in here that I don't recognize at yeah. all. There's, there's a, dude, a lot of people in this There's room. a gray-haired dude with glasses that's got some pretty funny, like, just facial responses to what people are saying. He's doing that, like, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, whenever anyone says anything. Oh, yeah. Is he doing the peas and carrots in he the background? Is, yeah, I think he is. Little peas and carrots? He's just kind of, like, there. I don't know what he's doing. He's got maybe a clipboard in his hand. And there's a redhead woman yeah. next to him. I'm like, who, <laughs> who are these random people? people that all of a sudden show up? Because even when you're in the control room, there's maybe only one extra person that's filling the extra chair that right. needs to be filled in that shot. And other than that, it's the people we know. And obviously the camera people as well when you show Kane and Casey. But you know, in the, in the control room, it's Elliot and it's Kim and it's Natalie and Dana and Dave, Chris, and Will. And that's about it. Yeah. And we've seen numerous rundown meetings. Who are these people? But <laughs> they're there serving some purpose. Uh, they, they kind of get into a memo that Natalie reads about building security saying it's getting cold, as we heard Dan say earlier. And there's been some homeless guys trying to basically sleep in the atrium. And if you see them, call security. They should, uh, you know, they shouldn't be there. And we get Dan again kind of like, well... What shouldn't we be helping these people? What are we supposed to do? Like it's showing through that he's on this. I gotta very help guilty, people. very feeling very guilty about certain things. We get an update about Desmond Corey and the team on Everest. They are setting up camp soon. They're at the Hillary Step at Camp Four. They're about twenty five hundred feet from the summit, so it's starting to get tough. And uh, we get this nice, funny little exchange where 
Man, does Casey know all about climbing. Camp four, about 2,500 feet below the summit. That's where the toeholds start getting pretty scarce. Now, tell me about it. Radio contact's been coming in and out, but as far as we know... Excuse me. Hmm. Did you just say, tell me about it? When? Then? Just now? Jeremy said, toeholds start getting pretty scarce, and you said, tell me about it. Yes. Implying that... I climb. You climb? I climb. I'm a climber. Mm. You climb at your gym. Darn tootin' I do, and it's a challenging ascent. It's a wall and a gym. It simulates a class three mountain. I hear the air gets pretty thin up near the juice bar. You know, <laughs> mock me if you must, but I hold in my heart what few men possess. A one-year membership to the Big Apple Health and Racket Club? <laughs> the spirit of the hill. Tell him, Casey. Yeah, tell us. There's a hill. It's spirit. Man, did you drop the ball. <laughs> oh, like you've climbed Kilimanjaro. He's got the spirit of the hill. Which he's, he's got the spirit of the hill. I like Googling things that you hear, like these phrases or places or names, because there's so many, at times, off-the-wall pop culture references. It's kind of like Archer. Like mm -hmm. I really enjoy Archer as a TV show, because there are so many off-the-wall pop culture references, or sometimes not pop culture at all. And I just like reading about some of these things. Absolutely. And I, I had to Google Spirit of the Hill. Let me see what happens when you Google Spirit of the Hill. And apparently there's a wildlife sanctuary in Spearfish, South Dakota oh. called Spirit of the Hill. <laughs> That's what I learned. That was my lesson of the day. Here's my biggest question about this scene and about this episode in general. We find out that this is all taking place on Sunday. And yes, Dana says we do our normal, our regular Sunday show and then we'll come back around 2 a.m., and I'm thinking to myself, since when do we do a Sunday show? I could have sworn it was a Monday through Friday. We have talked about before how this seems to be the old school sports center format yeah. where it was weekdays and it seemed like maybe there'd be a second group that maybe did some some pickups on the weekends. But Sunday night, I can't recall them ever saying that they were working on the weekends. I feel like they usually have the weekends off. Now I'll say this, and maybe they haven't talked about it in this show, in, in sports night, so I can understand that point of view and I'm in the same boat as you. But I will say that sports center in its heyday Sunday night was a big deal. Remember, that was the big show. That was Dan Patrick and Keith Olbermann. Sunday night at 11 o'clock Eastern time was maybe the most important sports center of the entire week because you were running down this part of the year, you'd be running down the it's entire NFL I'm, schedule. As you're saying all this, I'm starting to go like, man, this would be football day. Like this would be, I, now, I feel like a total like idiot for not. Oh no, 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 no absolutely not. But, but, just but to you're hear right them say, Like Sunday, Sunday, because they haven't talked about it at all. Right. And again, we're only in episode nine. I get that, but they haven't discussed weekends really at all yes and but sunday night was like the show for sports center that was dan patrick that was keith olbermann that was running down all of the nfl that was running down the weekend in, in major league baseball during the summer sunday night baseball would lead into sports center on espn on sunday night so you get to wrap up the entire mlb weekend and get you set for the next week so that was a really important show well there you go i'm a buffoon for no no not like at all sunday I, I just heard the word, I think just because I dread Sunday nights so much, as most people do, because you have to wake up the next day and go back on a Monday morning. Well, you know, right? it's funny. We're recording this on a Monday. For me, Sunday night is the best, one of well, the best true. nights of the week, yeah, because see? it's the most relaxed I will be <laughs> until the next, like, I get done with my NFL game, and I, I happen to have one in Chicago this weekend, so that was nice to just go home, but typically I'm, like, racing to the airport after an NFL game and hoping to catch my flight to get home, and when I get home on Sunday night... Like, I'm sleeping in on Monday. That is the most relaxed I'm going to be for the rest of the week until I got to start prepping for the next games. We we end the scene in the conference room with Dana kind of barking out commands. And she and Isaac then start a walk to his office. Turns out Dana is taking the afternoon off. She's going to babysit or just hang out with her niece, I guess. Uh, and Isaac asks, what are you going to take her to see? What are you going to do? And she says, oh, I'm going to take her to the Lion King. Now... 
Dana <laughs> apparently is unaware of how huge a phenomenon The Lion King was yep. and is, I think, still at this point, and thinks she can just pick up tickets no matter what. Like, oh, I'm just going to call the box office right now. And the delicious irony of this, and if, you, if you're unaware, I'm a little bit surprised, but it's Robert Guillaume who played Rafiki in the animated version of The Lion King, telling Dana about how popular The Lion King is. Welcome to the Pride Lands, home to some of the most glorious animals in Africa. I am Rafiki, and I am here to tell you the story of one special lion who lives here, a lion who holds a very dear place in my heart. Let us begin now. It is a perfect, as she describes, this woman with this beautiful voice, and I'm picturing the, the movie, obviously, because that's, you know, how could you not? Right. And Simba being held up and all this, and who comes to kind of baptize him with a mango or whatever? <laughs> <laughs> whatever he's doing is Rafiki. So you're right, that immediately my thought is like, he was living this, man. You don't got to tell him about it. He knows what's happening. I got. I want to use baptized by a mango in normal conversation Well, at you some know, point. he cuts some kind of, he makes a little yeah, mixture. Yeah, course, yeah. I, I'm picturing the scene, but... Yeah, maybe it's not a mango, whatever. Do they have mangoes in the jungle? Or I, th- they, I think they do. Or I guess the desert, wherever they were living there. <laughs> At any rate, so she, one of my favorite scenes in this episode is Dana calling the box office, being very stern and just getting shut down completely. Hi, I'd like two of your best seats for this afternoon's matinee. Anything between the 8th and the 12th rows in the center. And if I end up with an obstructed view, you're going to have a very angry woman on your hands. Yes. Yes. What's he saying? It's tough to tell he's laughing pretty hard. Now he's telling his friends. And there he just hung up. Screwed? Totally screwed. But Isaac, being the sage that he is, he knew. He just knew she was going to not be prepared. And look, I got a pair of tickets for you. Again, just going back to how thoughtful of a boss Isaac is and how well he knows his... You call them employees, but they obviously feel like much more than that. That's a tremendously thoughtful gift and and thoughtful gesture to to put up there. Oh, yeah. And this uh, scene will end with... Isaac encouraging Dana to become a theater lover. She's like, "Oh no, there's hoedowns. I can't get behind the hoedowns." But he <laughs> there's says, "Often a hoedown. You gotta. There's no hoedowns." And then he says at the end, though, nothing wrong with a good hoedown. <laughs> so it's a pretty nice ending there. And Dana leaves very happy that, hey, at least I'm gonna be able to take my niece to this show. We get to a new scene. It's just before showtime. Everyone's kind of running around. It's got to be approaching that dinner hour. Or just past it. And we find out that a water main is broken on Sixth Avenue. No one is delivering. This, while it seems again like an inconsequential little detail is going to cause big problems for Dan and Casey, who are just starving. And it's going to make for a couple of extra funny lines of banter. Uh, that also One of them also makes the air of their show uh, <laughs> at, at, at one point, and it will set up basically the ending scene of this entire episode in concert with something else that we've discussed. So everything we've, uh, we've kind of touched on with Aaron Sorkin's writing style, from your perspective as somebody who you know, has, has written in multiple forms, is this, a, is this rarefied air? that Aaron Sorkin is in to, to set all this up so seamlessly because it feels really simple, but I can't imagine it is. I feel like the the best writers go in knowing their, their end game first. So I think he maybe, and again, I don't really know how his writing style is or how he writes his stuff to begin with, but usually I think the best writers, you'll start with the ending and then work backwards better, at least know where that, that target is. Sure. So I can picture him having that moment of, why is he so desperate for the sandwich? This is happening, that's happening, and it all unfolds from there. The best, really any writing, I think television, movies, whatever, is the one where you get to the end and you have that moment of, oh, it all did make sense. Yeah, you get yeah. to kind of see it. And I tell students all the time as we're kind of approaching things, 
uh, longer form pieces especially that like you know every detail is important this is why you got to do this this is why you have to mark that down and make sure you remember this and all that um because i always compare it to like uh, a horror movie or a mystery movie where at the end they show you how everything ended up happening right and you realize oh i knew it all along or there were those clues being dropped i think we see it a lot in sports night because he as a playwright knew that it has to be story driven but it also has to be dialogue driven so he's right. not wasting any of that line any of the lines and also just knowing that that it's going to be 22 tight minutes i got to have these threads going on and the structure of the show sets up in, in such a way where you can probably have a couple different storylines, but they got to match at some point, or everything has to be resolved. If you think about, like, going back to probably the best television show of all time, look at Seinfeld, where at the beginning, it's separate, separate, but then as it hits its stride, like five, six seasons There's in, three or four everything threads comes that together, all right. seemingly And every little yeah. detail connects to somebody else, which is exactly what you see in, in the best writing. So I think it's... The sign of good writing, and good writing can be very hard to find. I forget sometimes that he's a playwright at heart. I mean, this is a, a guy who started his career writing plays, so you don't have moving pictures to complement whatever it is that you want to do for the most part. You don't have a whole lot. It's one scene, right. it's one background, and it's dialogue and character and narrative-driven, and it has to be. Otherwise, you know, a, a two-hour play turns into two and a half or three hours that you know nobody's going to want that extra 30 minutes to an hour. So Natalie pokes her way into the newsroom, calling out that she needs people to give her their edits, and they have to be prepared for X, Y, and Z. And Dan kind of grabs onto her and says, Natalie, what do you do with your money? And I love her response where she says, my portfolio is pretty much tied up in food and shelter, Dan. <laughs> and, and, you, he, and he kind of sheepishly like doesn't get it. He's like, no, no, you know, your disposable income. Yeah, and she gives kind of a look like, what? <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't realize that, oh, I make a lot more money than Natalie does. <laughs> But I appreciate Natalie kind of bouncing back and saying, well, well, I give my money to AIDS. And and you can really see what like the guilt that's still coming through Dan because he's like, well, what about this? What about that? And he's he's trying to justify all this in his head and rationalize it. He says something about, well, more people have breast cancer and diabetes and heart disease, but, you know, what about them? What if I don't give to them that I'm just, you know, he really wants to seem to make a big splash and help everybody, which is just impossible to do. But Natalie does give him some, some sound advice, I think, but just saying... Just get in the game. Yeah, you got to do something. Just anything counts. Um, and then we end up having Jeremy walk in and, and give them the exciting news that the climbers are now 1,500 feet from the summit. And J Natalie kind of gives a fist pump, and she gives this great romantic speech about how, look at what we can do. Two guys have ascended five miles into the sky. They walked up a wall of ice and are preparing to knock on the door of heaven itself. There's really no end to what we can do. And we head off to a commercial. Now we come back and Jeremy and Casey are sitting in the editing room kind of going through some stuff, shouting out some facts. Jeremy says 700 people have made it and one in four die, including 15 in 1997. Adam, would you like to hear some facts that I looked up today? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'd love, to, I'd love to hear what anytime I went you to, research. I went to town here. Mount Everest is 29,035 feet tall, which kind of works out because it turns out it grows almost a quarter inch every year. So at the 29.29, like it was, it's gotten a little bit bigger okay, over the years. Okay, interesting. Uh, it is over 60 million years old as a mountain, but hundreds of millions of years old in terms of the geology you can find there, which is awesome. All right. Uh, this is an interesting one here. So two Sherpas, one named, fittingly, Appa Sherpa, and the other named Furba Tashi, they have gone up 21 times. They've made it to the summit. 21 times. Wow. These two dudes. So three times Tashi went in 2007 by himself, and Sherpa has gone up, or went up, every year between 1990 and 2011. He went up to the so summit. So this guy just like... All he does, just you, you would assume for the most part, all he's doing is either bringing people up the summit or just hanging out and like, oh, I'm going to go up to the summit. That's, that's got to be it, I guess. Uh, so overall, 
presently, over 4,000 people have gone to the summit since 1953 when Edmund Hillary went up the first time. And now, and it's pretty interesting if you Google like pictures of it, there are literally lines of people. Like you kind of go wow. up in this huge group. And this was interesting to dig this up because in the show, they're making it this enormous event. Yes. It's these two dudes going up there. But now, I don't want to say it's commonplace, but it seems like it's just something lots of people do every year. Yeah, some people, I would imagine some people are like, oh, like if you and I were like, we're going to go, we should think about climbing Everest. And we saw, well, 4,000 people have done it. I know that's a very, very small percentage. And I'm sure many people have mm-hmm. perished in the process of actually trying to climb Everest. 282. That's so, I mean, that's still, a, that's still a big number. But that 4,000 person number, I feel like makes it, it makes it feel like a little bit less of a daunting task. Right. Even though I, there's no way I'd ever be able to do it. No, absolutely not. So 800 people try every year to climb up. Uh, it costs about $45,000 to get up there, it seems like. And another interesting fact, it is probably the most littered spot in the world <laughs> because of the oxygen it takes, yeah, et cetera, yeah, yeah. and lots of dead bodies. It, okay. When people die, you can't. It's very hard to get them down without, you know, putting other people's lives at risk. Yeah, you can't fly a helicopter up there or anything. So there are lots of dead bodies and empty oxygen tanks all over Mount Everest. That is, uh, I like how you refer to that as litter. <laughs> well, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry to those. I'm sorry to those 800 people. Oh, sorry, 200 people. So one in four die, and I don't know if that's 100% accurate anymore. I think just as technology has maybe gotten a little bit better, but it's still very deadly. It feels like one in 20 now. Yeah. It so, feels like, okay, yeah. But also, as Jeremy says, more people try every year, so the kind of ratio gets sure. a little bit changed. Uh, certainly not everybody makes it to the top either. Right. But as I start to discuss the dying, there's a pretty funny line here. What do they die from? Hypothermia? Hypothermia, sometimes a fractured skull. From what? Falling very far and landing on a rock. Then we find out that sometimes, and this seems to be a strange way to die, uh, people get what's called cerebral edema, which leaves them so disoriented that they literally sit there thinking, if I don't do something, I'm going to die, and they just can't do anything. Their brain isn't getting enough oxygen. So my wife, Lauren, is a nurse practitioner, and she works in neurosurgery. And I I told her, like, hey, there's some brain stuff in this episode. I wanted you to to say something. What can you tell us about uh, cerebral edema? What do you got? Did you write notes? No, well, I just wanted to – I actually started (laughs) looking up the – partial pressure of air and so I kind of was curious how much like what altitude do people actually start feeling these effects which I didn't really realize I just want to say how happy I am that you <laughs> researched this so much like I've never well, been more I, in love I understand than I am right the now. brain but I don't understand I mean I don't really deal with people who go to Mount Everest so I wasn't <laughs> sure like at what point in the altitude it would make a difference but anyway cerebral edema is basically swelling of the brain and what happens is when you're in such high altitudes you have less oxygen for example mount everest you would have one third the amount of oxygen you would have if you're at sea level so when you have less oxygen to breathe your body goes into this auto regulation state where it's trying to compensate and so you have more blood go to your brain and so that's vasodilating your vessels in your brain and when that happens there becomes damaged to the capillaries and so that the pressure goes up you as the increase of flow of blood and pressure increases your brain swells because it's a closed system you know we have our skull and so the brain can only go so far and then the pressure increases and once you have pressure increase that's when you develop confusion he says like people will get to the point where they know hey i'm gonna die if i don't do something and move right now but they can't make themselves do it. Does that sound like that would be accurate? Would that be the confusion? Well, the- yeah, confusion is actually a fairly early sign of this. And so you're right. They probably don't really take it seriously because they're not really sure what's going on. And then eventually 
I mean, the worst case scenario is like the, it's called brain herniation where your brain just herniates because it has no pr- where to go. The pressure is so high and then le- it loses then blood supply. That was amazing. That was awesome. I'm so happy right now. That you're, I, I was just like, this hey, is, I wanted you to tell me something about this. She, <laughs> she took notes and it was awesome. Well, oh. I, I didn't know exactly about the, the altitude, so I'm glad I now learned something new. Well, hey, thank you. Thank you, Lauren. <laughs> and that sounds a lot worse than falling and getting a fractious Yeah, actually, rock. that sounds, that sounds terrible. slow and kind of miserable. <laughs> I hate that Lauren's debut on the podcast was like severely depressing, yeah, actually. It was some grim news about yeah, that the was, brain. That was, that was not fun news, but I'm glad she was here to deliver it for us. So after their... Uh, after their discussion, we get into this great moment where Casey says, would you do it? Would you try to climb Everest? And Jeremy says, I think I would. I would do it now before I have anything really to live for. And Casey says, what do you mean? He, does, he says, I don't have a family. I don't have a, a, you know, I have a career, but you have this beautiful, amazing career. I don't have much to hold on to right now. So I think if I did it, I would do it right now. Yeah, at this moment, he doesn't feel like, oh, you know, there's anything really holding him back at this point. So obviously, you want to train for it and then do it now before he gets the things that he hopes he eventually has. But... He'll, he'll change that tune very, very quickly. Oh, yeah. Almost as if on cue. Natalie comes waltzing in and uh, talks just about, oh, we got this tape for some equipment. Here's this and that. And we get, we talked about it last week about how they have, are they really having that relationship? Are they a couple at this point? We find out that things have just been kind of awkward. They've been having almost a hidden relationship where it's kind of like, well, people know that we're into each other. They know this and that. Let's just do it. Let's just get out there and, and, and have this relationship. They kiss. They talk. They kiss. And then Jeremy ends with this great line. I'll tell you this. Any small glimmer of a chance that I was going to climb Everest has completely vanished. And like I said, Natalie blows it out of the park in this episode. I just, yeah. I'm back on Team Natalie, full swing. <laughs> I don't know if we're, we, we need the hashtag. We might have to create it and see if anybody responds to it. But Team Dana or Team Natalie, <laughs> and I think uh, you and I both... Uh, crossed back over to Team Natalie very quickly in this episode. <laughs> so we get to a new scene, and now Dan, on his quest to figure out what to do with his money, waltzes into Isaac's office <laughs> and wants to know what he does. And we get it, this is two weeks in a row where we get some kind of dig at the Democratic Party in the late 1990s when he says, I used to give my money to the Democrats, but you get your heart broken enough times and you just learn your lesson. So no more money for that. And we find out Isaac actually has a really nice thing that he does with his money. Danny, every morning I leave an acre and a half of the most beautiful property in New Canaan. Get on a train and come to work in a 54-story glass high-rise. In between, I step over bodies to get here, 20, 30, 50 of them a day. So as I'm stepping over them, I reach into my pocket and give them whatever I've got. You're not afraid they're going to spend it on booze? I'm hoping they're going to spend it on booze. <laughs> these people, most of them, it's not like they're one hot meal away from turning it around. For most of them, the clock's pretty much run out. They'll be home soon enough. What's wrong with giving them a little Novocaine to get them through the night? I kind of shifted my philosophy on giving money to homeless people because of this episode, because of that line. Because he said, you know, I, I hope they do, basically. You know, what's wrong with a little Novocaine to get you through the night? Because, you know, they're not one hot meal away from changing their lives. And it's just, it's about it. It's about having some empathy and, and being appreciative of what you have and knowing that these people aren't, you know, trying to scratch and claw at you. They're, they're just trying to get through another night. And yeah, I, I really did appreciate that line. And we get a little more background about Isaac here. He lives in New Canaan, Connecticut, it turns out, which is a pretty affluent joint. And that's, again, yeah, decent. we're dealing with some pretty wealthy people here. And just the thought that, like, they are so, that they're concerned with other people. And yeah. they're all, they all do something. It's nice. It shows that humility and that humanity. And they're, they know, I'm pretty fortunate. 
I should do something to try and help. Like I said, I it took me a while to kind of realize that, and and I hope I'm not you know telling too many tales out of school here. But I mean, we make a decent living at at our jobs, and and we do well for ourselves. And I trust me, I'm the first one to say I make way more money than I ever deserve, and specifically, I make way more money than this job should pay because it's a <laughs> joke uh, compared to the actual job that it is i mean we get we get paid to go to you know baseball and football games and talk about them and then go home or go to the next game so i'm well aware of how lucky we are when it comes to that stuff but you do feel some guilt at times and i really like that line and 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 casey's line later in this uh, in this episode too to to kind of rationalize things and give you some clarity about about how you can actually make a difference in small ways so dana comes from the hallway you hear oh my and she comes <laughs> she, was, she was so excited she's so passionate all of a sudden she is psyched she just got back from the lion king and she she had almost a spiritual awakening it seems like she got goosebumps and she says that she was supposed to be there at that moment and she's so excited and she thanks isaac just over and over again and, and goes off to to tell everybody about how much she loved this play and then she runs into casey and wants to extol her virtues of, of the theater to casey who's still starving and looking <laughs> for for a roast beef sandwich at that point but what Dana says is a really another really sweet portion of this episode. And of course, we get a, a solid Sorkinism here, maybe one of the most common Sorkinisms. It was really quite something. The music began and I just started to cry. I don't know where it came from. It was like church. I didn't know we could do that. <sighs> Did you know we could do that? Oh, when I forget something, usually reminds me. It was really quite something. That is probably his most useless line. <laughs> <laughs> I love in that, you know, we posted that Sorkin supercut oh, a yeah. couple of episodes ago, and there is like a, an entire like 20 seconds dedicated to just, <laughs> it was really quite something. It was really quite something. And this is the schmaltziest of schmaltzy episodes, but I am a sucker for schmaltz. Oh, I yeah. love it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I didn't know we could do that. She's kind of talked to so, herself at it's, the end. I mean, it's so kind of, uh, you know, whimsical, and I'm a sucker for it. So we get to a, a new scene. We're, we're starting to get pretty close here. The show is wrapping up. They're talking about some some heavy snow. As we know, there's a water main break. It's just chaos outside. And we get a pretty funny Casey line about Barry Sanders scoring three touchdowns on 240 when he says, Heck, a lot of those runs, I was just trying to stay warm. Which is both funny and, oh my God, is that cheesy. And would Barry <laughs> Sanders ever say something I like don't, that? I don't, I don't know Barry Sanders very well. I've, I've covered his son. But uh, and I've and I've covered Oklahoma State games. That's Barry Sanders' alma mater. But I don't know if Barry would actually say something like that. I, I hope that he would. I kind of do too. So the show ends. Everyone gets pretty psyched about the the uh, summit that's going to happen. I guess at this point in a couple hours, right? It's about midnight. They're supposed to reach it about two. Uh, everyone is just listening in the control room as Dana goes on and on and gets really psyched about her experience at the Lion King. So as the show comes down, we, we join Jeremy and Casey in the editing room again. This time they're talking about the prayers. So the Sherpas that climb with these guys, they're there to basically pray in this ceremony called a puja or puja to get permission from the gods to climb so closely. And, and Casey asks them, well, what if, what if they don't give permission? And Jeremy, you were talking about Schmaltz a second ago. He really lays in like, let me tell you something about humanity, baby. The gods can stick it. We're citizens of this planet. George Mallory, Edmund Hillary, Magellan, Balboa, Desmond Corey, you and I. And I don't think anyone should tell us how high we can climb. That's Mount Everest, the highest peak on the planet. 
You see a lock on the door and a do not disturb sign? It's five miles of ice straight up. Piece of cake. And we get to learn why he's all of a sudden feeling so, just so high on life or whatever at this point. And it's it's because I might be in love with Natalie. And it's, and I love Casey's reaction so immediately. He goes, ah, that'll do it. Like he just, knew, like he knew it and everybody yeah. knows it. And, and I think that's another underlying portion of this relationship. Like everybody's like, come on, just, just go do it. Just go do it. Yeah, now it can be out in the open, even though they had a little, uh, who cares if it's unprofessional exactly. earlier? Is it unprofessional? No, 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 of course not. They're into it. It's going to be fine at this point. We have another scene. This this episode really moves fast as I'm looking at my notes here, how many different scene changes there are. And it's about, must be about 2 a.m. Desmond Corey is getting very close. We see him on screen saying, we can see it now. It's a pretty funny, it was probably just somebody in a parking lot in Burbank wearing a parka. <laughs> and right. they just put some static over it. <laughs> but it's uh, a pretty funny visual of just the guy like, ah, I think I can see it now. Yeah, exactly. as there's, as there's <laughs> not, not major there. production value on this particular particular scene. So the guys are, are interviewing their two broadcasters who are there on site in Nepal. Uh, Libby and Mike, who I think it's the first time we've seen either of those guys, but they start to discuss the prayer flags and the right. importance of the puja. Casey again asks, well, what if permission is denied? And we get this moment where they both kind of go up to their ears, something's being relayed into them, and it's going to be another hold. We're not going to quite sure. get there yet. So we got a little tension building, just a little tiny bit, and uh, we return to regular programming for about 10 more minutes. So everyone's still just, just starving. And here's where we get that moment where Dan and Casey... Still trying to think about what to do with the money. Did you decide what you're going to do? And and here Casey gives some pretty solid advice. And, and here's his schmaltziness coming out in this particular scene. You're not going to solve everybody's problems. In fact, you're not going to solve anybody's problems. So you know what you should do? What? Anything. As much of it and as often as you can. And that's the line. That's that's the best line of, of advice, I think, in this episode. Like, just do whatever you can as often as you can do it. And don't feel so guilty about everything that you're you're doing or success or anything like that or... Or feeling like you have to devote this to this or that to that to make it seem like you're you're properly going about it. Just do something, anything. Anytime you can do anything to help somebody, no matter how big or small the act may be, is a good thing to do. You're you're trying to do something positive. Dan gets fired up at the end of this speech from Casey. And Casey's like, oh, was I right? Was I right? Well, yeah, <laughs> but... I got a half a turkey sandwich in the office, and they both get so it makes me laugh pretty good. How they're go get it, go get it. Yeah, his 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 facial reaction on that is awesome. So Dan takes off down the hallway, and he's he's singing a song about a turkey sandwich as he opens the door. Half turkey. He he walks into the uh, the office, and we get a little glimpse as he walks by of a little little silhouette in the background. What's going on here? This is a fantastic directorial sequence. And, and we mentioned it earlier, there are a couple of them in this episode. I thought this was great. To follow him from inside the office, coming down the hall and singing his song, to following him across the room, and you get that silhouette of somebody standing in the room, to see him go into the fridge and follow him right back towards the door, and then cut when he notices somebody standing there. And the only other thing, as good as that sequence is, the whoa that Dan puts up there. Whoa. All I could think of was Keanu Reeves. Whoa! That was that was like, like I'm sorry. Like I, it's it's it was it was not my favorite bit of acting in that moment. Whoa! Like that that was a little a little strange. So he's responding to this homeless man who's standing in the office, just standing there. He's very he looks very scared. It's almost like uh, he's like fro- He almost looks like, paralyzed with fear. Yeah, basically, yeah, he's, he's just, he doesn't uh, want to bother anybody, and he's scared that he's going to get caught or or in trouble or arrested or something like that. Dan keeps asking him questions. He's not responding. He says, "You're not supposed to be here." Did you come up? Did you get chased away from downstairs? And the guy's just kind of looking at him very, very 
very worried. Elliot pokes his head in to say, hey, there's, and he sees him and is like, should I call security? And Dan suddenly has this this little moment in his mind and says, it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. we're okay. So Elliot's like, oh, all right, I'll, I'll be right outside. Sure. And Dan just decides, all right, look, here's what's going to happen. I got half a turkey sandwich. Sit down. I'll sit with you. I want you to eat this, and, you know, we'll keep you warm for a little bit. He kind of unfolds things. He turns on the monitor and says, as soon as this guy gets up to the top of the mountain, I got to go back in, so I got to keep an eye on this, but here, here's your sandwich. And there's another kind of great, there's a lot of tension. A lot of tension, but even not, though it's, It's not, yeah. like, overwhelming, but the, he reaches in his pocket and Dan says, oh, you don't have to pay me anything, just take, and he pulls out a, pulls, like out, a pulls out a, a knife. Like, like a, a greaser-style switchblade. Like, like, like he's getting ready for a rumble of some sort, he's gonna, <laughs> and, he, and it's the, like, you hear the snap on the knife, and Dan's right, whoa, whoa, easy there. He jumps out of his seat, yeah, like, hey, take it easy. Take it easy, and... and and all the guy is doing is just cutting the sandwich in half. And and I also I know it's a subtle thing, but the fact that he grabs the wrapping paper I always and that turns too. it so that his I mean he's got you notice the dirt on his mm-hmm. hands, uh, but the fact that he uses the wrapping paper to cover his hand so it doesn't get the sandwich dirty, and he cuts you know he, he kind of wipes the knife and then cuts it. And it'll, it'll, I don't think it's strange, but it was just different. Yeah. Stabs the, the half a sandwich <laughs> and he shows it to Dan. I mean, these are all really, really subtle things, really kind of small acts, but it it's all part of a really impactful performance. The actor's name is Felton Perry. He's actually born in Chicago hey. in the 40s. Uh, he was Detective Dale in Dumb and Dumber, uh, clean shaven in that movie. And he did have a part in a West Wing episode as uh, as an alcoholic in one of those AA meetings uh, that, uh, those meetings. that Tim Matheson's character, the the vice president, has. But other than that, I mean, RoboCop, you know, he's got some impressive movie credits, but he's not like a superstar or anything like that. But this was a really, really impactful, subtle, quiet performance. He's maybe in this episode for 90 seconds, but it, it hits you. It sticks with you. Really good. And he's, he's appreciating the generosity and giving some back. And I, I like that we get that reverse where Dan says, thanks. And he gives that nice, you're welcome. Yeah, nice he's got the deep, deep voice and, and, and it's just really, really good. And I, I really appreciated the, the short amount of time that, that, that Felton Perry was, was in this episode. So they sit to eat, and as they're doing this, we see on the screen that Desmond Corey is just about reaching the peak. Dan turns to the the homeless man and says, look what we can do. And you get this nice smile. Uh, I also love Elliot pokes his head in again. It's happening. And he goes, we're, we're watching. watching. <laughs> like, and, and like they're old friends. Just like, like, it's like he's hanging out with his buddy. And, and the shift in Dan's face when he realizes, you know, maybe he was judging too quickly when a guy pulled out a knife or... Or whatever, like it's just the the last. It, it's schmaltzy. We said it's a really schmaltzy episode. The music that's being used mm-hmm. is uh, called "The Weight" oh, yeah. by a band called The Band. The band. So the yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, so yeah. I mean, it's and it's a classic song, but I don't think a lot of people would know the title or the or the band name. No. But it's a classic song, and it really does. Like I said, it's a little schmaltzy, but it just fits. And I'm a sucker for it, and I think you are too. And oh, yeah, I think it's definitely. really, really appreciated how this episode ends. I am a Big fan, too, of the fact that we get the title card, the fade to black, and we have in the background Desmond Corey saying, four feet, this is it. We don't even get him at the top of Everest, which is like, it's so cool to me that this whole story is literally about somebody climbing a mountain, climbing the mountain, and we don't even really get that. It's just in the background. It's just enough for us to see these smaller stories and these little things that can make such a huge difference. So it's not the big, you know, monumentous achievement of climbing Everest that we really are focused on it's two guys sharing a sandwich yeah and it's two people realizing hey we like each other enough that people can deal with it we're going to be open about it and it's somebody appreciating the the experience of, of live theater or something like that it's these little moments 
that have this huge moment in the background that doesn't even get completed. I think that's really cool. It's like this podcast right now. Oh. <laughs> wow. Was, I was trying to be schmaltzy to, to match the level of this You schmaltzed it up, my man. You schmaltzed <laughs> it up in a big way. Seriously, I, I this is one of my favorite episodes, and I keep getting sick of ourselves saying it, <laughs> but... You know, I think you might be able to use this as maybe the the def- one of the defining episodes of the first season. And again, it's part of a like three or four episode stretch that is just tremendous. And I really, really like what's happening in this uh, in this sequence of episodes. Oddly enough, the next episode, which uh, is episode ten, Shoe Money Tonight, that's the episode that was the first I ever saw. Okay, and usually is the one that I show people if they've never seen it before. But there's like three that we've already covered this throughout the course of our, our podcast here that I might replace it with. So it's just one of those that sticks with me because it was that that first one. Well, it's one of those episodes with a with a couple of images that I think a lot of people remember because it's in, you know the poker the poker game between uh, everybody at the office. So I think it's something that a lot of people remember and maybe associate with Sports Night. So that'll be our show next week. We'll get a chance to dive into Shoe Money Tonight. So that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. As always, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, etc., etc. At Those Stories Pod. You can follow Adam at Adam Amin and me at SJCIM. You can also download and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. We will see you next time with episode 10. Otherwise, thanks for listening. For Steve Cimino, I'm Adam Amin, and you've been listening to Those Stories Plus. Those Stories Plus.